How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. Hello, and welcome to a very special episode of the Press Gallery Podcast. Today, rather than discuss the events of the past week, we will be discussing the events of the past 33 years. I think for a lot of people, the phrase institutional knowledge is some kind of abstract notion, uh, but in the Journal Newsroom, it's just a good way to describe our deputy editor, Kathy Kerr. By the time this podcast publishes on Friday evening, Kathy will be a retiree, officially, and we've decided to take one last opportunity to pick her brain, which is what reporters and columnists have been doing here for decades. So we're going to call this the Kathy Kerr, This Is Your Life episode? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Along with me, as you just heard, our city columnist, Paula Simons. Hello, so rude I am. <laughs> and politics columnist, Graham Thompson. Hello. And of course, the soon-to-be retiree, Kathy Kerr. Hello. Uh, and I'm especially privileged to host this podcast because... Uh, literally every single piece I wrote for the journal that I'm proud of has passed through Kathy's hands. And it's also fitting because at 33 years, Kathy, your career is exactly as long as my life. Oh, oh that's so <laughs> cruel. Oh. Uh, so I just wanted to kick that off by making you feel old because it's not going to stop. There's going to be half an hour of us making you feel old. Um, no, half an no, hour of us not making, because her feel, <laughs> making her feel special. And valued. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I think the best thing to do today is you have a lot of stories. We've heard some of them. Uh, different people have heard different stories. Um, but I think none of our readers really have. So uh, I think something that's notable is that Grant Notley, the father of our premier, 32 years ago, almost to the day, I mean, we're about two weeks off from the day, it was October 19th, died in a plane crash. And now, a year and a half later, his daughter is the premier. And Kathy, you've been around for that whole span of time. I'm just wondering if you can kind of uh, <laughs> let us know uh, what it's like to kind of see that come full circle. Um, it was interesting because when, uh, when we first proposed to do this, which I wasn't entirely on board with, but... Um, I thought, oh, well, you know, really, I'm trying to think how things would circle around because, of course, for most of my career, it was a conservative government, and now it's changed to an NDP government. And so there's, there's actually been quite a linear development here uh, just in the last uh, year or two. So I thought, well, where's the circularity? And then I thought, yeah, there is a circularity, Grant Notley, um, who actually, um, despite the fact that he led an incredibly small opposition, 
uh, and spent a long time in the wilderness of the opposition in this province, uh, was, I would say, a giant of politics in this province, um, much beloved on all sides of the House and by the public as well, whether they voted for him or not. Uh, so, I mean, it, his his memory is certainly um, one that for a couple of generations is um, is pretty entrenched in Alberta t- politics. And so it's, it's quite interesting that his daughter um, is now the premier. Uh, and I, I can't even begin to imagine how he would feel about that. Um, he would have been unbelievably proud of that. Uh, and it, it, it does, you know, create an opening and who knows, maybe a closing chapter, depending on how she does, uh, in, in that family's history. It's very, very interesting. So when you came to Alberta, did you come here to cover the legislature or what was your what was your first entree into into reporting in this province? Actually, no, I didn't come here to cover the legislature. I um, and actually my career is a little more than 33 years. It's just 33 years with post media and all of its um, uh, ancient uh, <laughs> iterations. Uh, when I came here in 1980, I came to the Lethbridge Herald um, just for a job, just for a job as a reporter. I, I had uh, uh, been in Ontario. I'm from Ontario originally, and I went to the University of Western Ontario in journalism. Um, and I hadn't really set on doing political uh, reporting at all. Um, but uh, when I was at the uh, Lethbridge Herald, uh, I did some work in uh, post-secondary reporting. I did some health reporting. And the legislature uh, reporter of that time for the Lethbridge Herald, back in the days when the Lethbridge Herald still had a legislature, not only reporter, but an actual bureau here in Edmonton, was um, a fellow named Roger Epp, who uh, later became a political science prof at Augustana. Uh, Roger was a very good reporter, a very, very good reporter. That job was the senior job, really, in the newsroom. And I really admired uh, the work he was doing. And when he decided to leave, I thought, I'm gonna throw my hat in the ring for this. I didn't know anything about Edmonton, actually. I hadn't even contemplated coming to Edmonton. Uh, but happily, I did get the job as the uh, Legislature Bureau Chief, only person, <laughs> and also the Legislature Columnist for the Lethbridge Herald. Uh, and fast really got the bug. I mean, I really, really did fall into political reporting in a big way. It was a different kind of political reporting. I did a lot of stories on um, stop loss hog programs and sugar beet <laughs> subsidies and things like that for the uh, for the Lethbridge Herald. And this but is I, back under Lougheed we're talking here. This is back under Lougheed, yes. So we're talking, uh, I came here I think in about 1981 or maybe early 1982 in the legislature and the bureau was kind of an odd one. Initially it was just you came up for the sessions which were spring and fall and fairly long actually and <laughs> lived in an apartment hotel uh, and, and went back and forth. Actually I commuted back and forth on time air, less long lamented time air which took like four hours to fly from here to uh, Lethbridge uh, on weekends. Uh, they eventually did create a full-time bureau and then they gonged the bureau completely in 1983 which left me deciding where I would go and I went to the Calgary Herald uh, as a legislature reporter. Stayed here in Edmonton even though I was working for the Calgary Herald and became a legislature reporter and Northern Alberta reporter for the Calgary Herald. So uh, yeah, I, I was bitten in Alberta. It didn't uh, come with me from Ontario. So that was I mean, Lougheed had been premier for a for a, a chunk of time by yep. then. Is that sort of peak Lougheed when you were 
I I would say not. I think he was starting to. I won't say go downhill, but certainly he was. Uh, he was at that point so well entrenched in his position that he was basically in that sort of mature stage of a political career. Uh, the, I think the really dynamic years were the 70s um, uh, for Peter Lougheed and, and that's when the probably the most exciting period of his, his career. But um, he certainly was an amazing force to be reckoned with and an amazing character as well. Uh, throughout all my years as a journalist, He's always remember. He always remembered my name, which kind of freaked me out a little bit. Even when I was the <laughs> business editor, I would get whoever report, whatever reporter had gone to a uh, a Peter Lougheed speech or whatever afterwards would come back, and in the scrum, Peter Lougheed said, "Say hello to Kathy Kerr." And I'd be kind of like, <laughs> "Really?" He still remembers. He had a stunning, stunning memory for names, and uh, it, it, so he was. Yeah, he was. He was. He was great to cover, um, except for one thing, which was he had a real difficulty stringing together, especially in scrums or impromptu, stringing together words to create one full sentence, uh, <laughs> like the, the dreaded broadcast clip. And he was aware of this too. We spent a lot of time like listening to our little tapes, which were tiny little tapes at that time, listening to our tapes, trying to actually produce like coherent sentences, which involved a lot of ellipses and, you know, <laughs> you know partial quotes. I did see him once, um, and he was aware of it. He was aware that he spoke this way. Uh, at a um, press conference, I can't remember, I think it was a forestry announcement. It was an enormous press conference that happened in the cabinet room, which was very unusual. We got into the cabinet room, some big announcement they were making. And there was a CBC reporter named Frank Dolphin. And Lougheed was the main speaker for this and doing his usual, you know, off on tangents, bits and pieces of sentences. And Frank asked him the same question five times, trying to get him to say it all in one sentence. And finally, Lougheed turned right into the CBC camera and said a full sentence. And, and we all kind of gasped. <laughs> and, he, and he said, and there, Frank, is your 30-second clip. So we all do. <laughs> We all knew exactly that he knew that we had difficulties with the way he spoke uh, on an impromptu basis. But uh, but yeah, very smart guy. Do you like? Do you have a sense when you're covering someone like that? Because he's kind of a mythic figure now in Alberta politics. Do you know that that's going to be the case when you're covering him? Can you kind of see that coming? That he's going to be mythic. That he's yeah. a legend. Oh yeah, he was already a legend by the time I got up here. Um, absolutely. I mean, he he was uh, for uh, frankly, you know, when I came to Alberta, it was not the player on uh, the economic stage uh, that it is became, you know, and, and still is really to a large extent, but it was already a big, big player on the political stage, mostly because of Lougheed. Um, everything that he played on the national stage made big news. And really, for the size of the population of Alberta, really he had tremendous influence. And it was just because he was often the smartest guy in the room at those first ministers and premiers meetings. You knew that he was um, he was the guy who was really carrying a large chunk of uh, the support from the other premiers. And so, yeah, he was already pretty much the titan when you went to those meetings and everybody wanted to talk to him. And what was what was his relationship with the I mean the press gallery then in and of itself would have been so different oh, yeah. than what it is today. I mean I'm always much kind of, bigger. I'm always kind of <laughs> haunted when I you know when I when I've been there to fill in for Graham or when I go down to do events and there's so many offices 
and they are so empty. So oh, what, yeah. what was yeah, the, the relationship? This week, for example, I was the only person down there um, in the press gallery. I was the sole person. People would come knocking on doors, and I'd be the one person that would answer the door because yeah. they has shrunk. Of course, back in the day, there were too many reporters and too few offices. So well, yeah. So, so what, what was it? What was it like to be in the press gallery in 1980, 81? Well, back in those days, it was it was a lot of reporters, especially for the session. It was huge for the session. You, you we, and we had a lot of national reporters actually who came through. Don Newman from uh, CBC National came through. Um, as an aside to the uh, for quite, and I can't remember what years it was, but the ledge reporter was Anna Maria Tremonti for CBC locally. Um, there was people from. The um, Financial Post. There was people from the Financial Times in Toronto. They both had bureaus. Um, we had a lot of people coming through. We even had an American reporter, and I. It, he was very. I never quite figured him out. There were rumors that he was actually a CIA agent. I doubt that, that was true. <laughs> um, just watching the oil developments in Alberta. I thought, yeah, I don't think so. I think he was just some cranky old guy who thought, yeah, maybe I'll retire in Alberta. Uh, but but there was there was an unusual number of people. I will tell you physically the press gallery was completely different because at that time it was up above the legislature chamber and we had these open cubicles that were made for some, from some pressed vegetable matter you know with the and the um, there was a washroom at the end of the corridor there was just they were all on one side and then there were the windows at the back of the legislature if you were looking up at the legislature you were looking up five floors to the press gallery and there was a washroom at the end of the corridor, which was unisex, because of course, when they first had a press gallery, they assumed <laughs> that there would never be such a thing as a woman reporter. And so <laughs> there was a unisex, so we had bang on the door before well, see, you but went that, in. That, that's very 2016. You had a... Yes, <laughs> that's true. Yes, a gender neutral bathroom. That's true, that's true. But it also had this weird quirk that <laughs> the commissioners, there were commissioners at that time, there were mostly elderly women and men, and they had to come through and one of their stops to make sure that they were making their rounds was in the middle of a washroom. I thought, who thought of that? But uh, anyway, it was it was an interesting um, uh, place to work, that's for sure. And also kind of run down. Um, in the spring, we they they had those little uh, you know the acoustical tiles with the holes in them above the cubicles and um, one year we had for some reason an infestation of ladybugs and so they would drop down out of the holes in the acoustical tiles and we would be hammering away I had a tele we had a teletype machine in those days not a computer folks and my teletype machine you'd be whamming away and they would get squashed <laughs> it was like oh horrible there would be hundreds of them coming down. So it was a totally different kind of press gallery. Um, what but about interesting? What about the relationship with the politicians? And like, I know you're an editor now, so you don't have first-hand knowledge of that. But do you feel like that has changed the the politicians and the journalists' relationship? Um, I, I will tell you that the premier's office sets that tone. Mm. And uh, so it goes up and down, I would say, in terms of the closeness. I would say at that time, there were there was a fair bit of partying between reporters and politicians, both on the informal and a formal basis, like the Christmas party. The Christmas party is still a good time here. There's no question um, that happens between the press gallery and that. But there's, but there was a closer relationship. There didn't seem to be the high stakes that the, that, that relationship feels like now. Mm -hmm. um, it was a little bit more uh, relaxed, I would say. Um, there was a lot more gossip, I think. Uh, yeah. as well uh, in the press gallery about what 
politicians were doing in their private lives. Such um, as? Oh, I'm not saying. <laughs> I am not saying because some of it would be a very action worthy and uh, yeah, it was can't, scurrilous. Can't, can't defame the dead. No, well, no, it was very scurrilous. A lot of it, and not all of them are dead. I might add. Um, so yeah, it, it, there there was a lot of backbiting gossip that was going on, uh, but and that was partly because there was a far more of a of a relaxed relationship. Um, I I would say. Uh, but it, it really is the premier's office that sets the tone. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, it just depends on, on how they, you know, what their attitude is. Are we the enemy? Are we the friend? Are we the tool? That that really does make the difference. So what, 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 what about what the relationship yeah. sorry, between the government and opposition back then? You know, the... um, actually, a lot of them were actually pretty close friends. Um, I would say, and I don't know that that's any different now, honestly. And that because it continued even in the the Klein years when everybody thought everything was very adversarial. I know that Klein was a very close personal friend of Pam Barrett's, so there 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 always has been some underlying friendships there. When Grant Notley died, the the politician that had to was completely overcome when they came back into the house and there was the big spray of white roses on Notley's desk was a conservative cabinet minister Boomer Adair had been um, he often flew on the same planes that you know ultimately Grant Notley died in Um, they were very good good friends they had adjoining uh, constituencies and Boomer was completely overcome and had to leave the chamber Um, uh, so there there was yeah there was some good friendships that happened there not always I mean certainly not always there was some antipathy but uh, yeah the tone of debate in question period I get a sense it was a lot more civil back then than it is now it was uh, well I can tell you and this is a Grant Notley story actually I I would say that of anyone, of any parliamentarian I have ever seen, Grant Notley was the best questioner in question period I have ever seen. He had the zinger. He had the third question. You know, they get two, three supplementaries, right? They ask the initial question. And then they get two supplementaries. Okay, two supplementaries. So he'd ask the initial question, and it would sound relatively innocuous. You know, can the honorable minister blah, 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 right? And it would sound relatively, you know, innocuous but you know you know that there was something coming then he would ask the first supplementary and 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 the minister would start to sweat and the second supplementary would be just this zinger but mr minister wouldn't you have to agree you know it would be unbelievably good the the second one was the it was the stab in the heart you know and you could tell and you could also tell interestingly i thought you could watch the other conservatives of which there was a huge mass of course uh in those days they would be waiting for that second one just in admiration because they knew something big was coming uh he was he was a master absolutely a master at it uh but it was always completely polite um he particularly was a real gentleman in the house were there some raucous debates absolutely there were raucous debates uh not maybe um they weren't insulting though were you there for Getty becoming premier? Um, I was. I was there for Getty. <laughs> yes, indeed, I was. In fact, the leadership race for Getty, um, it actually changed my wedding date. I, <laughs> All right. This is a story we have to hear. <laughs> I was originally, we originally had planned our wedding for October the 12th of 1985. And they picked that date for the leadership. Um, convention at which Getty uh, he defeated uh, Julian Koziak and uh, Ron Gitter 
and uh, and we realized that even though probably the Calgary Herald would have let me have that day off, even though I was a legislature reporter, none of the other guests at the wedding would have had the day off. So we thought, <laughs> yeah, we better change it. So we changed it by a week to October the 19th. So we got married the week after. Uh, I might say the weather was slightly better on the 12th, so I was a little bit regretful of that, but not that much. It was so, still pretty nice. So on every year on your anniversary, you can resent absolutely absolutely colder than it would have been otherwise (laughs) yeah yeah so yeah i was uh i was there for um uh for the getty uh, premiership and um uh, he was actually i mean he's he's had a real mixed review afterwards i mean in fact pretty negative review those were tough times in alberta at the time i think uh i think he tried his best he was not the premier that lougheed was i don't know how lougheed would have handled uh those economic times i think somewhat differently honestly um but uh but getty had a relatively a relatively good relationship with the press gallery um except when we really got under his skin uh, and I do remember once t- getting towards, you know, it would have been about 19, well, I know for sure, in fact, it was in 1987. Uh, and it was in the summer of 1987 because I was hugely pregnant at the time. He was, at that point, really actually sort of running from the reporters <laughs> occasionally because of one thing or another that we were getting under his skin about. I know um, um, there, there were a few comments he made that had gotten him into some hot water. And it was one day I was lumbering along because I was actually nine months pregnant. And he was running up the stairs. And I'm, please, Mr. Premier, could you stop and talk? And he turned around (laughs) to me and I was halfway up the stairs and he's on the landing and he says, woman in your condition shouldn't be running on the stairs. (laughs) Well, if you wouldn't, you know, continue (laughs) on, I could stop, you know. So, uh, yeah. Did Did he stop in the end? He did stop finally, <laughs> thank God, because I probably would add a heart attack right on the stairs. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, he did stop eventually. I remember you told me a story when I was pregnant. You were like a warning story about driving. You told me a story about being in the parking lot. Oh, I was in the parking lot of the legislature. The legislature building at that time, we could actually park relatively close to the building, the, the press gallery. And... I had pregnancy brain. There was only, and I was, it was fairly late in the evening because we always worked late. We worked the, the night sittings and all the rest of it. Um, and, and I'm not saying anything. What now. the heck are you? I'm not saying a thing. Anyway, we, we always worked the me. night sittings. And, I'm uh, alone down there. <laughs> and I came out of the house and got into my car. There was only one other car in the parking lot and it wasn't even next to me and I hit it on the way out. <laughs> I just had complete pregnancy brain when I was driving, so. <laughs> Somebody, yeah, I did leave a note on the windshield. But it wasn't, Sorry. it wasn't the Premier's car. No, it was, it was not the Premier's car. No, 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 definitely not. So was it, I mean, you talked about the fact that, you know, the old press gallery hadn't even made accommodation for the idea that women would use the bathroom. So you were doing this job while being a mom. Yeah. How difficult was it to balance those, I mean, you know, the, the, there were fewer accommodations back then oh, for working absolutely. women. Oh, yeah, no, it was completely bad. At that time, um, the mandated maternity leave was only four months. Uh, and actually, I came back a couple of weeks early because the um, <laughs> legislature bureau chief for the Herald quit um, a little bit early and came to work at the Edmonton Journal. I won't say who that was, Sheila Pratt. <laughs> um, 
but but they did ask me to come back early because they didn't have anybody up at the ledge. So um, so I did uh, uh, come back, and it was tough. And when I realized it was really going to be too tough was when my son Max started to walk. I thought, wow, with a busy toddler, this is really hard. And that is, in fact, when I um, I got in touch with the head office in Calgary and said, I think I need to come down and, and do a job that has more regular hours because the hours were killing at the ledge. Um, and there was a lot of stairs, <laughs> but but it, it they were killing. And it was just a little bit, it just got too difficult to accommodate. Uh, really, my my husband was actually um, at Nate um, taking cooking, and um, uh, it just became very very difficult. So uh, it it I certainly never contemplated quitting my job, but um, the legislature is uh, it it is an all in kind of job, and it is I think hard for uh, for mums to do it, and for fathers to do it. And, uh, but it's possible. I think it's more possible now than it was then. Yeah. Um, partly because. There's not the night sittings that there were. Uh, the the house doesn't sit quite as long as it did, um, and uh, and there's just more accommodations that have made in general in the working world. So when did we rescue you from the Calgary Herald? Um, I came up here in 1991 um, as the business editor. I had done a couple of jobs down at the Herald, including the assistant news editor, and I was the assistant entertainment editor. Uh, and uh, then uh, a job opened up up here and I came up as the business editor um, and I've done a, a lot of different jobs at that sort of level for many years uh, business editor new, uh, night news editor city editor features editor planner day planner in fact um, what the heck that was in the era when we had managers in newsrooms with really odd titles uh content editor i was content editor for quite some time uh and now deputy editor uh, and editorial page editor and editorial page editor which was part of being content editor yeah i think for yeah. most of my time here you've had about three different titles at any given time yeah just doing yeah. three different sections so yeah. so by the time klein becomes premier you're not at the legislature no, no. but you were an editor you were city editor Yep. for a big chunk of Klein's tenure. Yep. What was it like covering the Klein revolution? I mean, did you ever regret that you weren't <laughs> at the legislature yourself? I did. It was endlessly entertaining, God knows. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I did. I, I, I certainly kept up with politics during that period because uh, it was just, it was very interesting. I mean, interesting in this, uh, despite the sense that it was still a conservative government, but it was a different kind of conservative government than it had been under uh, Lougheed and Getty. Uh, it was so much more tied to uh, Ralph Klein's personality. And, and it was probably the first time that we'd really seen that politics of personality take over in this province. Um, well, I guess uh, first time since Eberhardt. Well, yeah, no, that's true. But that was yes. well before my time, Paula. I'm just telling you, <laughs> well before my time. Um, but yeah, Ralph Klein certainly was um, a force to be reckoned with um, on on many levels uh, and a very interesting character. Well, had you known him from your time I had, at the Herald? I had not. No, I had not actually known him. Uh, but I, I was interested to see uh, his ascension. Uh, he was he was a, a very colorful cabinet minister too. I mean, he was famous for having flipped the bird at environmentalists. I think it was he in Slave Lake or somewhere like no, that. No, he was in Athabasca. Athabasca, I close. I was, I, close. I was there when he yeah. did it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so then you're watching Klein from one step removed. 
Yeah. So what's that like watching politics one step removed as opposed to being actually in the, the trenches? Since, since Graham and I know yeah. it, no one has ever let us be in charge of anything we wouldn't know. <laughs> uh, yeah. It, I mean, it, it gives you a completely different perspective. I think it does give you a very different perspective. Uh, and I was even like one more step removed um, in some of those positions that I held throughout that period because uh, I wasn't directly involved in directing the uh, political coverage, which I certainly have been in the last few years. So it really was as though I were a reader, um, which actually is an interesting perspective. When you get into a news meeting and you're not actually responsible for the coverage area, you can chirp in with what you think the average reader would be interested in. Um, and sometimes it's not what you might think. Uh, I think the, the one of the issues with political coverage is that we tend to get up close uh, on issues that really aren't that interesting to the average person. Uh, once you get a bit of a removal, you, you get to say, oh, you know, what people are interested in is what's Ralph up today, up to today, uh, including, you know, the BOMOs and all the rest of it, and what matters to me as a taxpayer, as a citizen, as a voter. Not so much, you know, the toings and froings of, you know, who's ascendant in cabinet and, uh, you know, what the, frankly, what the opposition said, especially in that particular government because they had such an overwhelming majority. So in all the years that you've been predicting elections. I mean, Graham and I were joking before that he and I never, you know, we, we covered this day in and day out. We still never get it right. So how- You how, don't make predictions. I don't, make, I don't make predictions. <laughs> I refuse to make predictions now. I've been burned too often. So have you had better luck than we've had? Uh, generally speaking, no. But I will tell you, and this is a secret that I think is not a big surprise, uh, we always have an office pool. There's always a, a newsroom pool about who's going to win the election, how many seats. Pretty detailed pool, actually, like even down to tiebreakers of, you know, popular vote and the whole shooting match. So and it becomes like a big, now it's this huge, big whiteboard in the newsroom on election night. And, you know, you put in your toonies and see if you can win the 300 bucks or whatever that's, that's going to be uh, offered. So I have lost every single one, sometimes by huge margins, except one. And the year that I won was when I was in the Calgary Herald newsroom in 1989. I had a busy little boy at home. I was the TV Times and assistant entertainment editor, totally not paying any attention to politics, really. Probably the only time in my life, won the pool, which does say something about that removal from uh, from the fray and having a different perspective on things. Apparently not a bad perspective. Uh, and so now, I mean, we were talking earlier about how you walk around those offices in the press gallery and there's just nobody there. Yeah. Um, what does that, how does that affect coverage and how does that affect people who are voting and the democracy as a whole? I, I think it's a huge effect and I, I would say that it's, it's certainly a, a telling issue for North America right now. I mean, as we watch what's going on in the United States, uh, I think that although um, people tend to criticize conventional media, um, I think they're an institutionalized media. I think we really are the bulwark for the um, for the voter. I think we're absolutely crucial for the voter, and I do think that uh, all of those voices uh, that um, that get stilled by economic um, hardship in our business right now are voices that uh, really were needed. Uh, to give perspective, to break those stories, to have their ear to the ground. The ones who, you know, are covering the stories about sugar beet subsidies for the Lethbridge Herald or uh, who are covering some of the local issues uh, out of the legislature are gone. 
and, and I think that they were crucial issues. Um, I, I think we, we tend now, because there's so few of us, we, we only cover a few choice areas. Um, the government has an effect on way more than that. Uh, many corners of the province, many corners of the economy, um, so many programs to cover, so much to, to deal with. And we only now are able to cover that small slice because there's just not enough of us. I think that um, the Edmonton newsroom does a heck of a job, Post Media uh, Newsroom does a heck of a job with what it has uh, and does a, a, a great job at keeping readers in the Edmonton area and Northern Alberta informed. But that said, um, uh, I think it could always be better. When I first covered the legislature, the Edmonton Journal at that time had five regular members, five reporters, exclusive of the colonists, five reporters in the legislature during the sessions. They had a legislature bureau chief who actually worked out of the legislature. Um, uh, that was a lot of coverage and broke a lot of, of stories, uh, like a stunning number of stories in, in the face of a really difficult to cover political party that had a monolithic hold on this province. Um, and I, I think that that was absolutely crucial. Uh, and I, I think that it is um, really important that we, we stay in the legislature, that we stay in the legislature building, that we keep our ear to the ground. Um, and I wish that, frankly, there was more competition for post media there, uh, because the 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 bulk of numbers actually does make a difference in the quality of coverage. So I, I hope that gives you an idea of what we're losing here at the Edmonton Journal. Um, the only person of whom I am legitimately terrified. <laughs> <The> <laughs> yeah. And that holds true for <laughs> interns across the board. Um, but no, and I was going to say, you know, I just tried to say someone's irreplaceable, but Kathy really is irreplaceable. You know, people listening to this don't really realize the influence she has on a newsroom and coverage. And I know I always enjoy talking to Kathy about politics because yeah. I, um, it's, it's, a, it's a memory, institutional memory. It's also um, wisdom or news judgment based on 33 years and covering legislature. And I've covered it for a number of years, so I really appreciate and respect Kathy's judgment uh, which is usually well, always spot on. Um, and it will be a loss that people maybe not realize who are reading the paper that actually this has been removed from the paper. So it is a, to me, it is a replaceable yeah, loss. She's, she has always had our backs. I mean, you always knew that even if you I'm messed washing. up, even if you messed up, right, you'd hear about it from her privately. But if somebody called to complain about you, I mean, you always knew that she would defend you, that she would defend her reporters, that she would defend her paper, and that she would never show political favoritism. I think the New Democrats were quite surprised on being elected to find out that she played by the same hardball rules with them that she did for every conservative government. Um, there has never been any fear. I mean, she's never shown fear or favor. I I'm just, I'm just in fear. It's been, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's 21 years since, since I first met her and and you know she was city editor when I got here and I had no newspapering experience at all and after I'd been here a couple of months she called me into her office and said to me 
you are very high maintenance. So <laughs> I would like to thank her for maintaining me all these yeah. 20 oh, years. Oh, it's been a delight. It's been a delight, I have to say. I have to say, I, I had what there was one tweet after the little uh, press release went out about the fact that we had a new editor-in-chief and that I was leaving, and it was from Jason Markasoff, who was a, a city reporter at one time here at the at, uh, Edmonton Journal, and uh, he called me splendidly fearsome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's not quite how I envisioned, but, you know, I see myself as this, you know, fluffy-haired, grandmotherly type character in the newsroom, and uh, I now find out maybe that's, I wasn't. That, that, that's the only error in news judgment I think you've ever shown. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, so why don't we do a quick good stuff from the gallery? Um, Paula, you can begin. All right, I cannot pick one single Trump thing. I just can't. And so instead, I want to pick... Uh, the video that Kathy did with our former colleague Ryan Jackson last year oh, no. where she attacked the Butterdome craft sale with the same kind of strategic <laughs> vigor that she's always shown in planning our events here, whether we were covering budgets or covering elections. Uh, if you want to know what it was like to be under Kathy Kerr's management, you need to watch this video, especially as craft sale time grows nearer. But you have to admit it was good advice, right? Yeah, it's, I mean, really, it's very good advice. Really? What, what that video taught me is to never, ever, ever go to the butter dome craft <laughs> sale. And if you do, always check your coat. I'm that's just right. saying. That's, that's, that was... Yeah. <laughs> Great. Actually, um, it's not one of Kathy's stories. Um, uh, it's Paula's this week, um, a column on the, uh, the hospitals, the... Oh. The dangers, the ethical yeah. dangers, the real that downside, really a real yeah. human downside to having the Catholic Church run hospitals, especially dealing with the assisted uh, death. And it's a heartbreaking story at the beginning of that um, old man in uh, Vancouver, but uh, you nicely tied it back to what's happening here in Alberta. And yeah, I, I get outraged on many different fronts reading that column. That column got me thinking about this. I didn't really think about it before, but you really had me thinking about the real downside to having the Catholic Church involved in healthcare, other than just having them involved in education. Thank you. And Kathy? Okay, so now that I'm retiring, and almost retired, how many hours? Um, I, I'm going to suggest read fiction, uh, because I do, and it's my it's my big outlet. Uh, right at the moment, I'm reading Annie Prue's Barkskins. It's a very very good book, uh, and it's uh, it's it's quite an interesting perspective on both sides of the uh, border between Canada and the United States, uh, right from the very beginning, from you know early times in New France. Um, well worth a read. Uh, my piece is a New York Times Magazine piece called How Donald Trump Set Off a Civil War Within the Right-Wing Media. There's very little Trump in this piece. It's mainly about <laughs> how icy the green rooms on CNN and MSNBC have gotten. It's interesting and kind of funny at times, too. Uh, but thank you for listening to the Press Gallery podcast. Rest assured that your regular host, Emma Graney, will be back next week. Previous episodes of the Press Gallery are at edmontonjournal.com opinion or in the Edmonton Journal's SoundCloud feed. Thank you to Paula, Graham, and Kathy for being here with us. And please join me in wishing Kathy the restful and enjoyable retirement she definitely deserves. She may be retiring, but she'll never be retiring. <laughs> <laughs> yuck, yuck, yuck. <laughs>